thanks, Abby, for uh, leading us in prayer and reading uh, this parable to us. This is probably the most beloved parable in all of the Gospels. Uh, People love this story, understandably so. It's probably the most well-known of all the parables as well, um, because it seems to speak through time. It doesn't matter the, the time or the place in which you live, down through the generations, it has something to say to you. Uh, and the, the lessons, they just seem to be infinite in number. Every time you read this story, you, you get another insight. In fact, actually, after the 9 a.m. service, I talked to, to someone at length about this parable, and there was a whole other angle about it that he brought up that I had never really uh, considered or thought deeply about. And it just shows you that this parable is, like, remarkable in in how you can, you can just keep peeling it like an onion, and there's always another layer to it. It has been depicted down through the centuries in all kinds of ways through retelling of short stories and, and novels based around it, including, uh, or, and, and it's also been depicted in art. Um, I, was, I forgot to do this, but uh, what I wanted to do is I wanted to put Rembrandt's the prodigal son, that, that painting up on the screen behind me, because it's, it's a gorgeous depiction of uh, the story. My point is, it is so captivating uh, to all of us. I have heard dozens of, story, of sermons on this text, dozens. And um, one of my heroes, who I always talk about, Tim Keller, he actually became famous, really, because of the book he wrote around this uh, this story, The uh, Prodigal God, is a book that he wrote uh, that kind of made, he, he, he became famous for this book, uh, and it really launched his career as a, as a not, I mean, what do I mean launched his career? He, he, he wasn't looking for notoriety or anything, but he became well-known as a result of it. Anyhow, I have never preached on this parable, ever. But the Jesus Storybook Bible is making me why I shake my fist is because I find this passage intimidating. And I guess maybe because so many of my heroes have preached on this and, and I've always been amazed by the, the sermons I've heard on it, I find it incredibly intimidating. Um, but we got to do it. And we're going to do it this morning. I said that it speaks to all kinds of generations differently depending on your time and place. But what I would like to do for us this morning is I would like to kind of show for us a little bit just how outrageous and scandalous this story would have been to the original audience that was listening to it the first time it was shared. That was a very different world compared to the world that you and I live in now. And therefore, the audience would have received the story differently. So for example, uh, for our modern ears, Uh, The idea of the younger son kind of, uh, you know, going off on his own and finding himself, you know, uh, shedding the shackles of the 
the family rules and identity and forging his own identity, kind of a la Harry and Meghan uh, recently as they shared their stories, separating themselves from the royal family. Um, This kind of idea resonates with modern people like you and me. We would say it's important for us to live our truth and everyone ought to live their truth. And, And therefore, it's good that the younger son did that in this story. Now, it didn't turn out great obviously um but we would say hey you know uh who is a kelly clarkson you know she wrote that song uh what doesn't kill you makes you stronger something longer something and other stuff it's kind of catchy tune i don't know the words but i know that whole it doesn't kill you makes you stronger thing we would say that's the that's the lesson for the younger son it didn't kill him but he grew in wisdom and that's a good thing and the original audience would say absolutely not what this younger son did is unforgivable find your truth go off and see the world forge your own identity that kind of stuff is ridiculous according to the original audience more on that to come on how it's unforgivable what this story to them would be is the story of a radically dysfunctional family You have two sons, two sons, who dishonor and shame their father in public, in the community. And you have a patriarch, the head of the family, who behaves like an absolute fool towards both his sons, at least from their perspective. He is patient, he is forgiving, he is gentle, he is merciful. In other words, he is a wimp and a sucker and does not have control of his kids the way he ought to. He would have been an embarrassment to the first audience, okay? Because what the father does is, is he takes all the important conventions of that culture, all the, all the cultural conventions of first century Palestine, the ancient Near East, and this would also be uh, cultures like the one in which we find ourselves, uh, or not, not the one we find ourselves in, but traditional cultures around the world today, and he upends them, he overturns them, he brushes them aside. The father does that, and he does it for the sake of relationship. He does it because of love, because he desperately wants to restore his relationship with his younger son and his older son, and he behaves outrageously to do it. What Jesus is showing us in this story, now, there's four characters, okay? There's the father, the younger son, the older son, and then there's also the community. It's, it's, not, it's not present as, the community's not present as a character in the story, but it's an important character in the story. Oftentimes you will hear messages that uh, kind of emphasize what happens with the younger son and his restoration, or what happens with the older son and the problems with him, particularly uh, in church contexts, the uh, elder brother kind of stuff. What I want to do is I want to focus in on the character of the father. Because that would have been a major player to the hearers standing around listening to Jesus tell this story. What Jesus is showing us here is that God, this is the almighty, only God who is transcendent, who is eternal, who has never had a beginning, who has existed 
outside of time, for all time, who is all-powerful, who created the universe simply by speaking and bam, everything that is came into existence with all its diversity and all its complexity. This God who is all-knowing, who knows comprehensively absolutely everything that can be known, this God who sustains this universe simply by the word of his power. If he were to say, I'm no longer interested in upholding the universe, it would immediately cease to be. This God is willing to do whatever is necessary to rescue his children from their self-inflicted destruction. That's what Jesus is showing us here. Yes, it's a story about two lost sons, But more importantly, not more importantly, but what I want to focus on this morning incredibly is it is a story of a remarkable father who at high cost to himself seeks to restore his family. And that father is representative of our father, the heavenly father. The one that Jesus said when he taught us to pray, said, pray this way, our Father. Not, oh, God who is way up there and who is beyond our comprehension and our understanding, who we could never really fully be in relationship with. No, Father. That's what we're going to look at together. So, I don't even have points today. All you point lovers, note takers, We're just going to unpack the story and just see what it says about the father. Here we go. The context is an agrarian society, okay? Meaning that all the people who are listening to Jesus are probably farmers or at least connected to the farming industry just like the main characters in the story. And this is an important point because it's all about an estate. Um... They didn't have banks back then, you know, and they didn't have retirement funds and mutual funds and RRSPs and all this kind of stuff as as a way of accumulating your wealth. The way that you built wealth in that culture was through land. You had land that was given to you by your ancestors and you cared for that land and you built wealth through cultivating that land and then you passed that land on to your descendants. And everybody in the community, the village surrounding the far, or the village at the center of all these farms, everybody knew whose land was what land and, and who, uh, who was obligated to, to what land. And so every person had ancestors that had given them the land and they were obligated to those ancestors to take care of it properly. And then they had descendants that they were obligated to and they were supposed to take care of the land in order to pass it down to those descendants. And the younger son comes to his father, and it says in verse 11, he says, or sorry, verse 10. Why do I keep saying it's in verse 11? Father, no, it's verse 12. What am I up to here? Father, give me my share of the estate. So the younger son comes, and he says, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, the the original audience would have just been gobsmacked to hear the younger son actually say that to them. I want you, Father, to break up the estate. What he's asking his father to do is he's asking to get him to give his portion of land that was going to go to him to him. Now, just so you know, 
in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, the older son would get two-thirds of the estate and the younger son would get one-third of the estate. So what he's saying is, slice off a portion of uh, one-third of the estate and give it to me. Now, he's asking for the estate to be broken up, which means he's putting future security for those who remain at stake. Because now the land portion size is smaller, and that means that you can't work it, etc. And he's also saying that he wants to leave the family. You notice that it says in verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, meaning he took his portion of the estate, he sold it, he liquidated it so he could carry his bag of money with him. And that means that you can't get that back. And so what he's doing is, is he's saying to his parents, he's saying, you're dead to me. Because you see, in those cultures, they didn't have retirement communities and they didn't have long-term care facilities and stuff like that. So when you became old, the expectation was, was that your children took care of you into your old age. And one of your kids is saying, I'm not into that. I'm taking off with my half. Uh, I, I don't want anything to do with you. You're basically dead to me. And the people hearing this younger son actually do that would have thought, here's what's got to happen. That son is supposed to be, like he's supposed to be beaten by his father, probably within an inch of his life, and then driven out of the family, off the farm, and out of the community completely. And the father, as they anticipate him doing that, does the exact opposite. He actually listens to his son, and he divides up the estate. And then he lets his younger son sell off his portion so that he can travel. So that he can take a gap year and go find himself or whatever. And the original audience hears that and they are completely gobsmacked. And they're thinking to themselves, what kind of patriarch, what kind of a head of a household cannot stop his sons from carving up their farm like this? Does this younger son, what is wrong with him? Does he have no shame? What in the world is a bag of money in comparison to land that was given to you by your ancestors and can be, uh, can be handed down to your descendants? And if they saw this father in town, in, in the village, you know, when the elders are, would gather at the gate, uh, they probably were confused about how to interact with him. They didn't know whether to have pity on this father or to kind of disdain this father and look down on this father. So they probably just ignored him. And some of you, you might know a little bit, like, what this is like. You know, the, you have the family farm from rural Ontario, and there's something about losing that. Uh, my, my wife grew up on one piece of property uh, in Aylmer, Ontario that was her father had bought and then he built a house and married a wife and bought himself a cow and no, <laughs> he didn't buy himself a cow. That's an inside joke maybe. Um, and he raised his family there and then just this past, just this year, he sold it and the, and, and the, the deal closed and Jessica kind of shed a tear over that. Now, she hasn't lived on the, the family homestead for many, many, many years, but there's still a sense of loss that comes with that. And so there's an, a sense of loss that has been experienced by this family and this community. And to them, the, the community, this son has done something so shameful 
that he is dead to them. They would not say his name anymore. Remember we talked about last, last week about how Zacchaeus, his family probably wiped him from their memory. You're not allowed to say his name at, at family gatherings anymore. Well, this is an entire village that says, this guy is dead to us. If he ever comes back, he either comes back fabulously wealthy so that he can buy us all out, or he better come with a massive army behind him because otherwise if we get our hands on him, he's in big, big trouble. Now the son does not return that way as we read in the story. What does he do? He goes off to a far country and he blows his inheritance on wild living, which means that he lost everything. And he lost everything to Gentiles. Pig-eating, idol-loving, sexually immoral Romans. The, the scandal of the story, the disgrace behind it, couldn't be worse. He better never show his face around here again. But, we read that he decides to come back. He is completely and utterly destitute, and so he's desperate, and he decides to go home, but he's not stupid. So he knows he can't return as a son. He can't dare try to get back into the family, so he kind of makes a plan up. I'll be a hired hand. I'll just kind of work for, for my father and my brother on the side, you know, try to make enough money maybe to get back. And as he's traveling home, he's kind of putting together his confession and his, his, his arguments for when he, he sees his family. But things don't quite go as planned. Maybe somebody has tipped off the father and said, hey, your, your son's on his way back here. You, you should get ready to, you know, you know put your, your boxing gloves on or something or, or go get your switch because it's time to really let him have it. Because we read that the father is watching and waiting for his return. Maybe it's like the family farm and he's on the porch, you know, having his coffee and looking out wistfully down the, down the, the laneway and he sees his, his uh, good-for-nothing son kind of coming back. And what does the father do? Jesus says he behaves poorly again. First of all, he runs. This is a Middle Eastern patriarch. You don't run. You know, he had to pull up his robe so that you can see his pale ankles. You know, you, you, you guys who wear socks and sandals all summer long, and then you go to the beach, and you pull off your socks and your sandals, and you've got that terrible tan line, right, as you walk into the water, and you look kind of silly, but you don't care because you're a modern Western man. Well, these men in the ancient Near East, they did not run. They didn't show their ankles like that. Also, he's wearing a robe, so the, the robe kind of gets folded sort of in between his legs as he runs, and it flaps behind him, all right? He looks ridiculous. That's why children ran. That's why sometimes maybe women ran. But men never, never, never ran. And this man runs to his son, and like a, a, a giddy, you know, silly emotional woman, sorry ladies, but this is the, the, according to the patriarchal culture of the day, okay, I'm not saying this is you, this is them saying this is what women were like. He throws himself on his son and he starts kissing him all over the place. Now the listeners to this story, they would not have known what to do with that. They would have just said another failure of this pathetic, desperate father. This is horrible. 
he has got to get his act together. But it actually, things get worse because now he tells his servants, even as the son tries to apologize and tries to repent of what he's done, he says, well, whatever, whatever. Servant, go get the best robe. That's his robe. Go get a ring and put it on his finger. Probably a signet ring, probably an official family ring, the kind of ring that you would seal contracts with, meaning that this is, this is restoring him to the family business. Go get sandals and put it on his feet because only a servant or a slave would ever walk around barefoot. Go get all these things. My son, I am restoring back to the family and I am doing it in a profoundly lavish way because the last thing he does is, is he says, go get the fattened calf. Now think about this. Calves become cows who can have calves so that they can be an engine, you know, an investment in your economic future. To kill a calf means you get this very tender meat, but you can't have any more calves when you've killed your calf. So it's an extremely, expen uh, expre extremely expensive thing to do to actually kill a fattened calf. And and it means that he's having a public celebration. He doesn't say go, get a goat or get a lamb and we'll have a private family affair. No, no, no. He says get the fattened calf because we're having a party that brings the entire town into our home. This son, who to that town was a complete outcast and should have been thought of as dead in their minds, is going to be celebrated by this father in front of them. What is... What is this father doing? Well, understand, this is what the father's doing. The cost of restoring the son was greater than the cost of the son's rebellion. The son's rebellion cost the father. Yes, it did. It cost him part of his estate. But the cost of the son's restoration was way beyond that because it cost him, first of all, it cost him his honor, any last shred of dignity and honor that he had with the community is gone. It is gone. They think that he is off his rocker. And he doesn't care because the younger son, the restoration of the younger son matters more to him than his reputation among the people. How amazing is this father that he's willing to go to these lengths to take this good-for-nothing, pig-loving, prostitute-using, idolatrous son and restore him fully and completely to the family. He doesn't restore him even to kind of like a secondary place. He reminds him of his sonship when he puts that, that, that robe on him and gives him the sandals and gives him the, the ring and has this fattened calf where he gets to sit at the head of the table and be celebrated by his father while all these townspeople are sitting around this meal muttering like, what in the world are we doing here? This veal is really good, I must admit. But what are we doing here with this son? celebrating him and there's the father sitting behind his son just lavishing love upon him and kissing him openly and saying what was lost has been found what was dead is now alive you would think okay that if anybody deserves a happy ending to their story because of all of this it would be the father but he doesn't get it because then the older son shows up he comes near the house he hears some music and dancing he says to the servant, what's going on in the house? 
servants to his... And by the way, he was in the field, so he's the hard-working son. He hasn't left the farm. He's out there doing chores till late in the day. And he shows up, and he asks the servant, what's going on? And the servant tells him, well, your, your, your father, he's throwing a party for your younger son who's back. And he's like, what? And it says that he gets angry when he hears that. And he refuses to enter the house. I don't know if he could see into the house. I, I like to picture him kind of peeking in the doorway and there he sees his son with, a, with, the, with his robe on, with the ring. You know, now he's writing contracts, is he? And with the sandals on his feet, with his up, you know, he'd never have his feet up on the table, not in that culture, but that's sort of how I pictured it. And, and this stupid grin on his face, eh, drinking his wine and celebrating and thinks to himself, what in the world is going on? He's boiling inside. I told you, this is a dysfunctional family. <laughs> At least to the hearers it is. And his problem is, is like nobody asked him to reconcile with his brother. Nobody asked him if, if he wanted to now share what's left of the inheritance with his brother. Nobody asked him if he wants to be known as the brother of this sinner. Nobody asked him, do you want the second best robe? Because, you know, the best one's taken. This is the good son, right? This is the good son who's done everything right all these years. And now he's being asked to sit with this selfish, pig-loving, sin-sick brother who caused this family so much grief. And he's like, no way. And he's like, I'm not going in there. Now, at this point, the listeners are thinking, okay, Father, now's your chance. Get up, go out there. Slap your older son around a little bit and tell him to do what's right and sit in, in, the, in, the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the feast. And again, the father gets up and he is so disappointing to them because he goes outside and he doesn't set his older son straight. He pleads with his older son, come into the party. You've got to come into the party. Come on. He reasons with the party. The son says, look, you've never even let me have a goat to celebrate with my friends. And the father says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Everything I have is yours. It's all yours. This is all yours. But we have to do this. We have to celebrate because what was dead is alive again and what was lost has been found. He pleads with his son, come into the party. And the son says, no, I ain't going. At least... That's the impression you get. The story ends, you see, and we don't actually know if the son enters the party, but all the, all the commentators seem to think that we're supposed to kind of assume that the son doesn't follow his father. And how undignifying is that? The father gets up from the table, all the people see him, he trudges outside, they look out the door, and there he is, pleading with his son, come on, you gotta come in, please, you gotta do it. Maybe with his head hanging low, he returns to the party, he walks back in without his son. And now every shred of dignity he might have possibly been able to, to keep is lost entirely. It's gone. And the son sits outside in his self-righteousness, just sipping it and enjoying it. I don't know if I've told you guys this. I think I've told you this story before. I've told this story many times. I don't know who's listening half the time. So I, I just like to talk to whoever's in my presence and tell stories. So um, one time... Jess and, Jess and I had an argument, and it's like the first time in a decade where I was right. 
and I was, I was really, really, really enjoying being right. And so I held on to my rightness and my, my self-righteousness. And uh, she's getting more and more upset, and, and she's trying to reconcile and come toward me, and I'm like, I'm like just enjoying, you know what it's like? You ever have that when you're like, I'm right, and it feels so good to be right. And I want to hold on to that feeling for as long as I can. And finally, she's weeping. And she's like, would you please extend me a little bit of the grace that you preach about every week? <gasps> Ooh, like she totally stabbed me in the heart with good words. It's exactly what I needed to hear. But I will never forget that moment because it, it taught me about the, the sin of self-righteousness. And how invigorating it can make you feel in the moment even as your relationship are disintegrating around you and this is a person a human being in the world that i love more than any other human being on the planet and here i am willing to let her suffer so that i can sip the cup of self-righteousness what am i on and that's what this son was doing I want you to see the heart of the father for his idiot sons here. The hearers are thinking the father is such a fool, letting himself being humiliated like this. But Jesus is showing us that this is our father. He is Christ's father. He's like no father on this earth. There is no father on this earth who has the emotional abandonment and the, and the generosity and the willingness to forgive and even receive agony, the agony of rejected love for the sake of, of seeking the restoration. Here Jesus is saying, for all his power and all his majesty and all his glory and all his strength, you want to know what God is fundamentally like? Well, it's the same thing the Apostle John said in his letters. God is is love. People misjudge the Christian faith all the time for all kinds of reasons. And one of the reasons that people think Christianity's no good is because we've got this angry God who's out there with his checkbook or with, his, with his, his, his ledger deciding whether you've done enough good things to get into heaven or you've done enough bad things to be sent to hell. And that's what they think God is like. And I'm here to let you know right now, if that's what you've thought God is like, you have not rejected the true Christian faith. You don't understand the true Christian faith because the true Christian faith is about a father who is willing to do whatever it took to restore his lost and dead children to him. And the ultimate cost was born actually as something even bigger somebody better make sure he doesn't go down the stairs on his own <laughs> um, the cost was even bigger than just his honor and his shame because you see in order for this son to be restored and this is what makes the older son so angry is that it had to cost the older son his inheritance all that was left was his but if he's going to now care for his younger son when his father is gone that that investment all that inheritance has to be used for that 
person. And Jesus gives us that hint in verse 31 when he does say, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. All I have is yours. That's, that's literally true. All that stuff that, that the father owns is actually the son's. And the only way the younger son can get back is at the cost of the older son. He has to pay the expenses. And that's why he's so furious. And Jesus sets it up this way because he wants to contrast the older son who is self-righteous with the true older son. The true elder brother that we need that is himself, you see. You see, Jesus is showing us the true bro- older son that, that, that we need. You see, what the older son should have done to the father, if he really wanted to honor the father, is he should have said, I will go find my brother. I will go out and I will go to the far country or wherever he is or find him at the bar or, or I will look high and low and I will bring him back and I will spare no expense in order to get him back. That's what the son should have done, but he doesn't do it in this story. But you and I, you see, we don't, we don't have that elder brother who just had to go to the next town to find us. We have the elder brother to end all elder brothers. We have Jesus Christ who said, I will leave heaven itself. I will give up all of this inheritance to seek my brothers and sisters on earth. I will go to, to, to rescue them from themselves and I will pay whatever it costs to bring them back into your, my, my father's family. And it will cost more than my wallet. It will cost my life, but that is okay with me. Because you see, on the cross, Jesus Christ was stripped naked so that you and I could be robed with robes beyond Joseph's amazing technicolor dream coat or the robes that this younger son wore in the story. We are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. The most beautiful clothing that will ever have been stitched together, it will be ours because of him. And on that cross, when Jesus cried out for the first time and the only time, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He heard nothing in response. He lost his sonship so that we could be brought into the family of God. He wasn't treated as a son so that you will always, 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 always know that you are God's child. And he had everything. And he gave it up. And and when he won it back through his death and resurrection, what does he do? He shares it with all of us to bring us home. Now, Really, it's to the degree that you get that. I, I told you, what, what I want you to see is I want you to see how remarkable the father is. I, I, some of us, we have, we have daddy issues, and we all do to, to some degree, okay? We all do to some degree. Whether you were raised by your father or not, you have daddy issues. You also have mommy issues. You also have sibling issues because we are all sinners living in families, and therefore, we hurt them, and they hurt us. We fail them, and they fail us, and so we're all living with these issues. But if your issue is you could never, ever, ever feel like you could live up to the expectations of your father, you need to hear this story. Because your true father does not look at your performance and base his acceptance of you on that. He looks at 
the performance of your brother, Jesus. And he sees what he's done for you. And if, it, if any of you is living with guilt and thinking, you know, God could never accept me because of the things that I have done, just like, like, like any earthly parent finally kind of gets sick of their kid, always screwing up and always saying, I'll try better and, and, and wondering if they actually even mean it and saying, I've had enough of you, don't call me anymore. I've heard stories of that. People who, through the years, they have messed up so many times that finally their mom or their dad just says, don't call me, I can't hack it anymore. Here is the God who created you telling you, I am not that kind of parent ever. Never. He who comes to me, I will never drive away, Jesus says. Because my father and myself gave everything to make you mine. It's what your soul is looking for, friends. I don't know, I don't have time to explain how that is to you because that's another sermon. But I promise you, it's what you're looking for and longing for. And it's right here. Receive him. Let's pray. Father, help us to receive your fatherhood You are like no other father on the earth. I just think of Myrnie and her suffering. She needs to experience your fatherhood. I think of all of us who have daddy issues, <laughs> we need to experience your fatherhood and rest in your fatherhood. Enable us to do that. Transform us so that when we do that, others would see a joy in us that draws them to you as well. In Jesus' name, amen.